the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. This past Tuesday, China upped the ante in its unacknowledged dispute with Canada. China suspended imports of Canadian meat on the grounds that its authorities don't trust Canadian assurances about the quality of its exports after previously obstructing shipments of Canadian canola, peas and soybeans. The move happened on the eve of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's trip to the G20 in Japan, where U.S. President Donald Trump promised he would advocate on behalf of Canada and specifically the two detained Canadians in Beijing, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. Canada has been on China's radar since Canadian authorities arrested Huawei executive Meng Wenzhou on December 1st in Vancouver at the request of the U.S. Joining me to discuss the developments, the conservative critic of agriculture Luke Berthold and Chuck Kwan of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China. It's a purely political uh, move and it's basically a retaliation. Uh, for us arresting uh, the Huawei executive, Meng Wanzhou. And you would suspect that this is their strategy to continue to hit us with uh, the the import situation? Yes, uh, this is especially true given the last, uh, the behavior of China over the last seven years or eight years uh, when the current president, Xi Jinping, uh, took power. He had been kind of uh, doing this China dream kind of uh, plan uh, to, quote unquote, dominate the world, which is uh, they, they, they kind of put China back. They want to put China back on the map. So what, in your opinion, will Beijing continue to do in trying to get uh, their way to have the Huawei executive released? Well, I, I don't think we should be tempering with the judicial process that we have gone through. I know that Beijing wanted our minister to um, uh, release uh, uh, the Huawei executive. I think, but, but I think that's a wrong move on our part because if we do that, then we'll be kowtowing to every single demand from China and other world power that decided that to retaliate for anything that they uh, that they, displeases them. So I think we need to stand up to our backbone and 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 um, stand up for for the justice and for uh, judicial process. We've got the conservative critic of agriculture, Luke Berthold, on the line. Uh, explain for us uh, how critical this latest development is on the banning of meat imports from the conservatives' point of view and, and what Prime Minister Trudeau needs to do about it. Uh, you, you need to do something. Uh, you know, because since the beginning of this crisis with the Chinese government, he just uh, let everything happening. He uh, tried to refer this crisis to his uh, technical representative from CSIA. He tried uh, to not make it political, but now we know and everybody knows that this is a political issue between Canada and China. So uh, we asked them uh, to uh, uh, first start by naming a new ambassador to China, but they, they just didn't move about it. We asked them to put a complaint on the WTO 
uh, board just to to show China that that we are taking this crisis seriously, and they refused a bunch of times to do it, and uh, maybe just sending uh, an envoy, a special envoy there, and again they refused. So they just they they just waited to for something to happen, and this strategy didn't work. So now tomorrow this is the, the last chance of the of Mr. Trudeau to stand up for Canadian and uh, for the canola producers, for the pork producers, for the beef producers, and uh, try to convince Mr. Jepin to to just start to talk and try to resolve this crisis. I agree with the the conservative critic, critic yes. about uh, filing a complaint to WTO. I agree with. Uh, Appointing a new ambassador, um, my my caution is that uh, you can do all that, uh, but uh, the reality is that China just won't budge, and this is the kind of reality that we're facing right now. So whether it's conservative or the liberals uh, in power, I think they will face the same problem. My conversation on Wednesday with conservative agriculture critic Luke Berthold and Chuck Kwan of the Toronto Association of Democracy in China. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. A new report reveals Canadians who are 65 plus make a strong impact on the country's economy through their volunteer efforts, an impact that largely goes unnoticed. In fact, the Rivera Report on Aging, Living a Life of Purpose, shows Canadian seniors contribute nearly $11 billion in economic value through their volunteer efforts and raise more than $4 billion for charities. Joining me to discuss volunteering in your Zoomer years, volunteer Ferg Devins at Bladder Cancer Canada and Susan Shuda, Vice President of Corporate Affairs at Rivera. You know, one of the things that it shows is that nine out of 10 uh, people who are over the age of 65 give back in some way to their community, whether it's supporting charities um, or causes that are important to them or giving, and they do that by giving their time or giving their money or giving votes. So a lot of people sort of take seniors for granted. And my experience when I go into any volunteer organization is that it usually is seniors that are running it. Uh, and, uh, and we think that that is not, uh, that's not as recognized as it should be. So uh, we're, we're pleased to have the opportunity to share that information with people of, uh, that are listening today. Susan, did your findings come up with why the, the 65 plus demographic is so involved in volunteering? One of the reasons is that uh, people who are over 65 really believe that they're, they have a contribution to make and um, that they're very relevant to the causes that are important to them. Uh, you know, and when we looked at what some of those causes are, we had 54% say that the environment was important to them, 50% talked about poverty, 48% talked about health care, um, about a third talked about global security. So these are all big issues uh, and people are really willing to get engaged uh, and they and they do it because they have the time and they have the the ability. Also with us here for this segment, Ferg Devins, uh, with the organization that I also volunteer with, Bladder Cancer Canada. Uh, Ferg, so what drives you to do it? To share so much of your time. I was very fortunate. I worked for a company, the second oldest brand in the country, Molson. And the Molson family and the Molson heritage was all about playing your part in the community. So. You know, the 30 years I spent with that organization, that was a big part of who we were as an organization. Um, they supported employees. They matched donations. So 
we were strongly encouraged to get involved in our communities. But I also grew up in Kenora, Ontario. And I think that, you know, sometimes growing up in a small town, people just tend to pitch in. You know, and I, I find that in my neighborhood in Toronto as well. When, when things are happening in the, in the community, the call goes out and people step up. Um, I love the reflection with respect to those in their senior years because I really think that, you know, we can give a lot more respect to our seniors as a resource. The years of experience, the thought leadership that they've had through their lives, and obviously the ability for them to give of their time and resources. So although there's probably a higher proportion of senior engagement in the charitable work and volunteerism, I think there's still a, a greater opportunity for us to involve those folks in our community that have truly made a difference and brought us to where we are today. Oftentimes people volunteer for organizations because it's a way of giving back. Uh, and, you know, so people we know from the survey, a lot of people volunteer with uh, a religious organization, whether it be a church or a synagogue or a mosque. And that's truly rooted in the sense of community that you get from those kinds of uh, community initiatives. It's just a natural thing for me. Um, you know, I, I love people, love to be involved. And, uh, you know, I'm involved in a number of, uh, of, of things right now. And, and, uh, you know, I think that the, the big thing is not to burn yourself out as a volunteer. Okay. Um, and I've been very choiceful over the years to, to take on, um, you know, a, a limited number of things to ensure that I can truly be giving good quality and good value to those organizations with, with whom I'm volunteering. And back to Susan, just to wrap things up here, how to get involved if you've never done it and you're thinking, I could spare a few hours a week. What's the best way to go about getting involved and sharing your time? Think about what what cause it is that you want to support, what uh, charity, what's important to you, how do you want to spend your time? And then I think, you know, it really is about just reaching out, picking right. up the phone, uh, you know, going online, finding the, the website, registering as a volunteer. Uh, so I think there's a lot of different ways. You might even know somebody in your community already that, uh, where, you know, who is already volunteering. And sometimes people think to themselves, well, I don't really, they, I won't know anyone. I don't know what to do. Uh, but if you go with somebody that you know, maybe it's two people going together, find a friend to start with, you know, start volunteering with. It's a little bit like going to the gym. You just need that one little push. Uh, and, uh, having a friend to go with might, might make it feel more comfortable, but, I really think it's follow your passion, you know, think about what gives you purpose and you'll be able to, you'll be able to just pick up the phone or reach out by email and, and find that opportunity. That was Susan Shuda, VP of Corporate Affairs at Rivera and volunteer Ferg Devins, Chair of Bladder Cancer Canada. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. The Trudeau Liberals announced new initiatives this past week to combat online terrorism and violent extremism. They are being called a coordinated action to prevent social media and other online platforms from being used as tools to incite, publish, and promote terrorism, violence, and hatred. Canada has also joined other world leaders in adopting the Christchurch Call to Action, a global pledge to eliminate terrorist and violent extremist content online after the accused suspect in the mosque massacres live-streamed the murders on social media. Joining me to discuss the plans, Logan McNair at the Cybercrime Research Centre at Simon Fraser University, along with security expert Ross McLean. This announcement by the government and what they're working to do, I see it as a step 
to work at censoring speech online and surveilling Canadians. They're doing it under the cloak, Jane, of saying we're against terrorism and violent extremism. And what they very nicely add on to the end of those clearly identifiable, detestable things, easy to deal with things, they add on the words terrorism, violent extremism, and hatred. So what they're trying to do here is they're going to put together and use technology, uh, encourage newspapers, tell technology companies what sort of speech uh, is allowed to be done for terrorism, violence, extremism, and here's the weird, the weird part, and hatred. Who's going to define this and who's going to run this? This is, this is my question. To, to say that what we're going to do here is monitor, make no doubt about it, this is going to be to monitor and collect the speech of Canadians by a government star chamber. We don't know who these people are going to be, are going to take whatever you do that they deem to be hatred and put it in a repository, keep that for who knows for how long, distribute it where, and have people taken down. So who is going to control this language? Mm -hmm. I, I think it's just a cover to be able to get at to control people's political speech. I'm all for fighting terrorism. You know that. I've talked about it enough on your show. But I, I'm a little bit concerned about how this is being implemented. Logan McNair is a researcher at Cybercrime Research Center at Simon Fraser University. What do you think about the initiatives announced? Yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic about some of the things that were said and some of the decisions that were made yesterday, um, particularly with regard to the designation of, for the first time in Canada, right-wing extremist groups you know, onto the organizational terrorist watch list. This is a watch list that has over 50 organizations on it, and this is the first time that they've included right-wing groups onto this list. And that is really not proportional to the threat that these organizations and that these movements pose in Canada and in the West more generally. And within the last seven or eight years or so, we see that it's right-wing extremist violence that is really the um, preeminent version of, of extremism in the, in the country and in the West. So I think that's good, and that sets a precedent to sort of tackle these, these issues more directly from a government perspective, and it also opens the door for the tech companies and the social media companies to, um, to tackle them as well, because for a long time they've been hiding behind this defense of we don't necessarily want to acknowledge or address this content uh, until the government sort of does it first. And now that governments are starting to do that, um, I think we can sort of uh, put some more pressure on the companies to monitor the type of content that they have on their platforms. Uh, it's unfortunate that it took such a horrific event like Christchurch to really get the ball rolling on this because these are trends that we've been noticing for a while, but, uh, but it's better late than never, I suppose. I think there's been a, a recent awakening in the last, especially, especially after the Christchurch thing, um, there's been a sort of waking up to what's going on and to the prevalence of these types of things and to how bad it can really get if we don't address them or acknowledge them. So um, I do think that's an important first step, and I think it's good that uh, governments are getting on board. I don't think that we should um, let the, the social media companies and the big tech companies off the hook. I think pressure needs to be put on them as well for uh, uh, prevent, uh, potentially providing a platform for these types of things and letting them get to a point where it's gotten to. Um, but I do think that People are waking up and are moving in the right direction. So that's good. Logan McNair, I was uh, reading your bio online. Uh, you are a PhD student doing research at Simon Fraser University. What are you working on? 
Uh, so right now we're working on documenting the uh, media campaigns, the online media campaigns of extremist groups. So we're looking at propaganda that's been produced by uh, Islamic groups like ISIS, um, but also far-right groups, uh, groups from the alt-right and so on, looking at how they create this propaganda, how they create this media, how they disseminate it, uh, who is listening to it, and sort of what is the potential role that it plays in the larger radicalization process. And will this information ultimately go to the government that you're working on? Uh, possibly. Okay. Um, that's that's the hope. It's, it would be nice if it could be uh, applied in a practical way. Sure. Uh, it's always nice when you do work and, and, and it actually means something. So uh, that would be uh, that would be nice. Logan McNair at Simon Fraser University and security and terrorism expert Ross McLean. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. When Premier Doug Ford shuffled his cabinet last week, he created the new post of Minister of Long-Term Care, which had previously fallen under the health portfolio. And he moved Dr. Marilee Fullerton from Minister of Training Colleges and Universities to Minister of Long-Term Care. Dr. Fullerton joined me to discuss her new post and plans to revamp long-term care, followed by reaction from Laura Tamblin-Watts at CARP and Lisa Levin of Advantage, Ontario. Well, I'm thrilled. Uh, you know, I, I I was a family doctor for almost 28 years and uh, also had personal experience uh, with my family requiring long-term care. So I've, I've looked at for the last decade to have ways to have input and improve long-term care. And we're, we're moving ahead with our plan to make a patient-centered system in long-term care that will allow families and, and patients to get uh, access to the long-term care that they need when they need it. Uh, we're on our way to getting 15,000 long-term care beds in five years up and running. We've got over 7,000 beds allocated already. And uh, I think this will allow a benefit to our hospitals as well. Because as you know, our healthcare system is all interconnected and long-term care is a critical part of, of helping end hallway healthcare. So I'm very, very uh, positive and really excited to get going. Uh, specifically, Advantage Ontario, when welcoming you to the new post, wants to make sure you honor your commitment to build 30,000 new beds over 10 years. Is that something you can see still happening? Well, definitely. You know, we're we're getting started immediately. I just took over this role, and uh, we've hit the ground running. We have seven thousand, over seven thousand allocated beds right now. Uh, we are uh, providing seventy-two million dollars in more, more in funding um, to make these things happen. And uh, we we know that this is a priority for our government by, you know, the the very fact that it has created uh, a new ministry to deal with this. We know that it's an imperative. And, uh, and we're already going on it. Joining me with reaction, Laura Tamblin Watts, Chief Public Policy Officer of CARP, a new vision of aging. She's in the studio with me. Laura, your thoughts on Minister Fullerton's comments? Well, we're excited to see that long-term care is getting its own focused ministry. It's important to make sure that long-term care doesn't get lost in the broader mandate of the healthcare system. And since healthcare reform is a 
key initiative of this government. I'm encouraged to see that it has a place to live. So there's a lot of promises about new beds, but we see sometimes when they say things are new beds, what they may be is long-term care facilities that aren't up to standards and they're just being refreshed. So they're not actually adding new stock to it. They're just sort of changing a classification to it. We're interested to see whether they'll be engaged in, you know, emotion-based transformative care. Are they going to have a look at actually the the regulation burden in long-term care and to make sure that really we're focusing on the appropriate amount of staffing and supports as opposed to, you know, the hyper-regulated checklist so we see people spending their time. So it's a big ministry. We're happy that it exists. And uh, and we're encouraged to see that there's some lived experience that this minister brings to it as well. Yes, yes, she is a doctor. Let's go over to Lisa Levin. She's on the line here with us, Chief Executive Officer of Advantage Ontario. What did you think about what the minister had to say? Well, it's great that she's so enthusiastic. She has that experience as a family physician, uh, in addition to, you know, her political background. And We are really excited that this government has put a priority on long-term care and created a dedicated leadership on it. How would you like to comment on what Laura was saying there about the refreshed beds versus the brand new beds? She gave you her word that she would have 30,000 new beds over 10 years. I think that in terms of new beds, they are indeed going to be creating new beds. However, these beds may not all be in uh, separate brand new buildings. Some of them are adding on to existing buildings. Some of them are adding on to buildings that have to be redeveloped. And so I think that what's important to look at is not just increasing capacity, which is essential and which I believe this government is committed to doing, but also making sure that if we're going to be building new beds, that we do it in a different way. Because right now, at least 70% of the people in long-term care have dementia. And that's very different than the way it was 10, 15 years ago. 10, 15 years ago, people used to drive up to long-term care, park their car, and go inside. Now they're coming by ambulance. They're much sicker, they're much frailer, and they need a different kind of care than in the past. So when we build these new beds and when we redevelop existing homes, we need to do it in a different way and look at models from other parts of the world and some models that we're starting to develop here in Canada to provide better care. Lisa Levin at Advantage Ontario, Laura Tamblam Watts at CARP, A New Vision of Aging, and the new Ontario Minister of Long-Term Care, Dr. Marilee Fullerton. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. After going through the audio, here are some of the best calls of the week. Kathy in Newmarket phoned to say she's been a volunteer for decades because of the giving and receiving. I am a true volunteer and actually I started when I was 16. I work part-time now with seniors but I devote my time to many different causes. I want to be part of a community and and I just love doing it and uh, yes you don't get paid but you get paid differently. Marcia in Maple called to talk about how her mom has dementia and is in a temporary facility while the family waits for a long-term care opportunity. We're having difficulty with my mom. She's 95. We have no place to put her, unfortunately. She has mild dementia. It's very difficult. We've spoken to our MPP, who is conservative. 
We've spoken to Central Lynn, and here we are. No place to keep mom. My sister visits her every day, make sure she's fed. If she's not given there, she's, if, if my sister does not go, sometimes she may not be fed. Um, I go on weekends. Unfortunately, I still work. It's very, very heart-wrenching, and we're both so much under stress, and we're frustrated. We don't know what to do. She's been on a waiting list for three years, but unfortunately, they're telling us it's a five- to eight-year waiting period. In the meantime, what do we do with this poor mom that she is immobile? And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Ivan in Milton, who shared some sad news while continuing his advocacy for improved long-term care. This is very dear to my heart. My wife did pass away this week for long-term care for three years. We dealt with a couple of years of it at home, so we could not deal with it anymore. And then we got into... um, uh, it's, a, it's hospital, but it's not hospital. It's run by the region, of which we paid for just as the same as we would pay for a long-term care. It's not PSWs, it's nurses. And I have to tell you, they're so short-staffed. They're, they need people. I've ne- this, what upsets me more than anything is, same as, you could have a program on this, Jane, every single day of the week. It's talk, talk, and more talk. You don't see any action. And when you do, they tell us, we've just created 600 more beds. Nobody mentioned about the workers. Nobody mentions the labor that they're going to need. It's because it's very, the labor is probably the most expensive part of it. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Michelle Saunders, Justin Eacock, and Kelly Robotham.